talk to you now. Just that I'm marching. Okay. I'm always dreaming of you marching. What's on the show tonight, baby? Miller, that's a combination. Shinzano, and you're off at 5850. Goody, goody. Okay. Where is my kazoo? All right. All righty. <coughs> All right, come on, let's go, baby. Yeah. Who's our engineer tonight? Cornell. That's good news. Okay, let's get up there and give him hell. Don't give him a minute's peace, my model. When it comes to an audience, though, if you want to get specific about radio, I think that, at least in my work, I think people have a tendency to either love what I do or they hate it. I mean, there's no in-between. It's a, it's a, it's a passion. Uh, you know yourself, if you've ever listened or if you enjoy the show that I do, if you've ever tried to explain it to somebody who's, let's say, uh, uh, not interested at all, they look at you and they say, what does he do? And you say, well, he tells stories. He, uh, he's funny. He uh, talks about life. And then they say, well, uh, has he ever been on the Ed Sullivan show? <laughs> and you say, well, no. And ultimately, you find it difficult to explain what I do, and I think that anybody who talks about life is not easily tagged. Uh, a man who tells one-line jokes, he's a comic. A man who sings songs, he's a singer. But a person who deals with life may do all of those. Uh, and so when you try to talk about life, you have to sing. You've heard me talk. Uh, you've heard me on the air uh, sing the Sheik of Araby or, or sing After You've Gone, because all these are ways to point out that life can't be talked about by just words. Uh, you've got to do it with silence. You have to do it with beat, tempo, and rhythm. And it's tremendously exciting. Yes, we have. Hi, Skip, you're already in there, Ben. Okay. All right, Dad, let's hear what you've got to say here. All right, bring it up. Let's hear it. personalities include, among others, John Gambling, Jack O'Brien, Joe Franklin, and, of course, the truly unique Gene Shepard. The hours are 10.15 to 11 weeknights. The magic number is 7.10. And the man behind the mic that's what we're here for now, to find out about Gene Shepard. His moods, his ideals, his aspirations, even his gripes. And what better place to find out than from the man himself here at his own headquarters, WOR Radio. But this is only one of the worlds involving Gene Shepard. For the air personality is complemented by the stage star and author. In fact, three worlds make up Gene Shepard's life. Tonight, we're going to explore all three. First, a look at Shepard's office on the 20th floor, the nerve center from which his monologues begin their journey to some 66,000 listeners in the metropolitan area, 
plus thousands of others in 27 states and Canada. Yes, Gene Shepard's appeal is not only magnetic, it's international, and hopefully will capture its essence during the next 30 minutes. Let's start here. la da 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 la da 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 razzmatazz and a rooty tooth la da Ah, welcome to my vast nerve center, which flow, <laughs> from which flows all these fantastic images and thoughts and ideas and concepts and vast generalities. You know, uh, I, I heard John there mention that I have 66,000 listeners every night. Well... The curious thing, the first question that's ever asked me almost invariably by people who want to know about the world of radio is, how do you judge your audience? Who do you think your audience is? How do you see your audience? Well, I'm going to be very honest with you, and I, I think I'm, I'm going to say something here that may bother a few of you. But the truth of it is, is that when I do a show, when I'm working in radio, I never once think of the audience I always think of myself uh, I'm my audience in other words when I'm on the air and uh, I look out over that darkness I think of radio as kind of darkness uh, a kind of a, a huge blank sheet of paper and my job is to fill that blank sheet of paper with ideas and with, uh, with pictures and with sound with images and the only person that I know who's actually listening to it, who's actually involved in it, is me. I carry on this this argument. So I'll say something on the air. I'll say, uh, uh, isn't it fantastic to be alive? I mean, it's spring. Or it's fall. Or I can, I can feel the snow coming down the back of my neck. And immediately there's another voice inside of me that says, oh, yeah. What do you mean, great? And then I start arguing. And for 45 minutes, I carry on this this argument between the outward me and and this thing that's inside of me, whatever that audience may be. And you know, the curious the curious thing about uh, radio, and I think that is one of the most exciting things about radio, is the fact that it's probably the only medium that man has yet devised where two people who totally uh, are disinterested, who do not know each other, who've never seen each other in most cases, are communing in, a, in the most direct possible way. In other words, when I'm on the radio at night, there's no audience. Now, now what is an audience? An audience is a group of people who have gathered together to see something, to uh, hear something. In other words, when you go to a movie house, there's a thousand people, all of you sitting together, and you're all sitting there, and, and you're all sitting watching uh, Audrey Hepburn, or you're watching Cary Grant. But when you're listening to the radio, you're almost always alone. There's one guy sitting in the front seat of his Mustang, and uh, he's uh, 15 miles away from the Howard Johnson, and he's got to go real bad. And uh, he figures he's not going to make it. He sees a big sign coming up that says, uh, restrooms, 12 miles. Then he gets panicky. And he drives like mad for the next 20 minutes. And all of a sudden, another sign comes up that says, Howard Johnson, ahead. 
uh, telephones, lodging, and restrooms one mile. And he figures he's won another victory. <laughs> and he drives like mad into the driveway, and it's closed. Well, it's just me and him. He's sitting there. He's got it coming out of the out of the uh, dashboard of his car. And I'm sitting in a room all by myself, and the two of us are talking. But we're talking in a way that no two friends ever dare to do. Very few people, when they're sitting together with each other, can actually say the things they're thinking. Because there's too many other things involved. You know the guy's mother. Uh, you know his uh, girlfriend. Uh, you know him too well. And so I think radio is one of the most exciting of all the mediums I've ever known. Incidentally, another thing about that, when I'm on the air, quite often I'll, I'll talk about when I was a kid. Uh, I'll discuss the time when maybe I was 10 years old and I wanted a BB gun. Or I wanted to, uh, who knows what, you know. I wanted, I wanted to get the Little Orphan Annie Secret Society uh, decoder pin. And people listening to me, older people generally, will uh, suspect that I'm making it up. Because most people, I've noticed, when they get a certain age, they have a tendency to completely forget their lives. As a matter of fact, I suspect that many people today in, uh, you know, the 20th century, there's 50 million things going on, and 5,000 television shows a day, and 500 newscasts a day, that they eventually don't even, uh, they have difficulty remembering last Wednesday. And yet it's exactly the opposite. I think that... As most people get older, they have a tendency to erase their lives. They, they rarely even remember the fact that they were a kid. And so for that reason, I use childhood as a point of, uh, I suppose you might say, common communication. It's the one thing we've all had. Uh, if you're 12 now, uh, you've got to look at your dad and recognize the fact that he was 12 once, too. He really was. And he knows it. And even if he pretends that he wasn't, he really was. And you know, whenever I go on the air at night, when that microphone gets hot, uh, all of a sudden uh, there's that, that tension. And I feel that out there in the darkness, there's 27 states lying out there. And you never know who's listening or how many are listening. In fact, I never even really consciously think of it. Do you realize the temptations I have? Just think. Just think what I could tell, say, Pennsylvania. The microphone gets hot, and I look out there, and I say, Hey, Pennsylvania. Thousands of them look all of a sudden at the radio on their dashboard of their car. I say, What do you want? I say, You know what I want. Get on the stick, Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's a great medium. Fantastic medium. Radio. Oh, yeah, by the way, that's another thing. Uh, I think that the most fun I've ever had in radio is when I really am not doing pure radio. I'm doing a stage show, a, a pure stage presentation, which I do down at the limelight, and which, by the way, is also broadcast. That's a wild night. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the limelight will be straight pleasure for introducing Mr. Gene
right ahead of you. noisy confines of a crowded restaurant, the Gene Shepherd demonstrates his mastery over an audience. Striding on stage, dressed in shirt sleeves, utilizing short, choppy gestures, and at times yelling both compliments and insults, he brooks no sideshows when his act is in progress. The rapport is immediate, the presence magnetic. In this atmosphere, perhaps the most demanding in all show business, he who hesitates is lost. And Shepard, never one to stutter elsewhere, does not do it here. He ad-libs his way furiously, strewing slangy asides as he goes, and building his punchlines home with a special delivery impact. The feeling of camaraderie is heightened when members of the audience shout lines at Shepard. Quite often, the whole room springs alive as he fields questions and wisecracks from the customers. But while self-confidence and assertiveness are certainly a part of his style... No one has a greater respect for the audience or for his own integrity as performer than Gene Shepard. He loves his work, and this contagious enthusiasm, this glow, lights up the whole restaurant. For a little while, life becomes a swinging affair, and good news is just around the corner. And after the show, the king holds court. Shepard is never too busy to take five and meet his fans. This historic hall. I'm eating the same halls that John Gambling wants. <laughs> You know, Gene, I was watching you here in action with the Limeliner earlier this evening. Doing what? Doing my you show? You were uh, doing your show. You were terrific, you know? Well, I do a lot of things down here. Yeah, I know you do. But I'm talking about the uh, thespian, Shepard the actor. And I was wondering during the course of the show if you, uh, as a child, as a little boy, had any concrete aspiration to be an actor? Or is this something you just happened to fall in? Well, I think all kids secretly are actors because almost every kid I know is a born liar. Yeah. But, uh, the only the only actual idol I ever had, John, to be honest with you, was the Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger? Yeah, you see, I had a, a fantastic desire to own a gun that shot silver bullets. <laughs> I have a friend named Tonto. You know, I had friends named Schwartz and Bruner. I thought Tonto's a great name. Yeah. But uh, to be serious about that, John, I... I you know, I came from a steel mill town, uh, Hammond, Indiana, which is right on the shore of the lake. And nobody in those towns really thinks concretely, or at least when I grew up, uh, thought about going into show business. The movies and the theater were things that were so remote and so distant that it was kind of like another world. My ambition, if you really want to know what my actual ambition was, it was to become a foreman in the tin mill. <laughs> uh, the biggest the biggest man in our neighborhood was a foreman, and he was a foreman in the tin mill, and, and everybody envied him because he only worked days. That was considered the ultimate in a great job, had a day job. And he always drove a new Chevy, and that was fantastic. And I, I got into the Army... And I had been an athlete, you know, John. And while I was in the Army, I began to have a slight interest in 
in things that could be called the theater. We uh, we did a couple of little shows in my company, things like that. When I got out of the army, uh, I, I thought, you know, I had this GI Bill of Rights. And I had a college career laid out for me. And I was thinking to myself one day, I'll never forget it. I was walking down the street, coming home from school. I was in school about six months. And you won't believe this, but I was in a pre-med course. I was actually in a pre-dental course. Somewhere along the line, I took a, uh, I took one of these uh, GI aptitude tests that they give you when you get out, uh, that the Veterans Administration gives you. And after taking three days of tests, the guy called me in and he says, son, he says, you are a born dentist. <laughs> well, I had never thought of being a dentist in my How life. How did you determine this? By the Through the test, see? So I started to take uh, pre-dent, and about three or four weeks after I was in this, I was bored out of my skull. I was taking, uh, you know, science course, taking uh, zoology and things like that. And I was coming up from school one day, and all of a sudden, it hit me just like a shot. I don't want to spend the rest of my life looking at impacted molars. I am not going to do it. And I had this... I don't know. I can't explain it. It just came out of the blue. I said to myself, well, I think I'd like to try show business. And I had done some radio as a, as a sportscaster during high school. And I went into Chicago and I took some auditions and I found that I could act. I didn't know it really before then. And I got on a, I actually was on the old Jack Armstrong show as a kid. You know, I was just playing a kid, a toady even then. I played Jack Armstrong's best friend. <laughs> I played the guy that always said, Jack, the smugglers are coming. What are we going to do? And Jack solved the problem. Those were the days when Chicago was the headquarters of kids' shows. Uh, oh, it was dying, though, then. Uh, it was dying then because, you know, that was well after the war. And, uh, and uh, I, I found that I loved the theater and acting and performing so much that uh, I've never thought of seriously doing anything else. And incidentally, John, uh, I look upon writing as a form of performing. But uh, when I'm working down here at the limelight or working on stage, you know, I've done a lot of stage work, uh, what could be called legitimate. Uh, I was in New Faces, you know, the Leonard Soma's New Faces. Uh, I was in New Faces in 1962. Uh, I've done a lot of off-Broadway reviews. Now, I did most of this stuff before people got to know me as a radio performer, so they probably uh, wonder about that. But I was in a review, a uh, big one down uh, off-Broadway. I did about five different reviews, and I did the Arthur Copeland play here a year or so ago in the Theater de Lise, and I'm, I'm seriously thinking of doing some more legitimate work, because I love it. We've just seen Gene Shepard on stage. Let's take a long look now at Gene Shepard, the author. In God we trust, all of us pay cash. Yeah, I'll never forget the, the day that the book came out. In God we trust, all of us pay cash. And I, as a matter of fact, it was a kind of a cold, windy, uh, raw day. And I knew that it was the day that the book was to be published, of course, because it represented three years of waiting. And I guess that's the one thing about writing that most people really don't know about who've never done any serious writing. And that's the 
tremendous amount of time it takes. This this great, uh, oh, it's like some kind of an enormous toad growing on your back. And the editor calls up every couple of weeks and he says, "How's it going?" And then after that, you get so you don't answer the phone. I mean, you're worried about it day after day and month after month. Then you pretend like you never even started it. And then after a while, you wish you had never started it. And all of a sudden, it finishes itself with a great rush, and it's gone. You send the manuscript in, and after three years of work, and you kind of feel a, a tremendous relief. And then you start getting a little nervous. What are they going to say about it? Well, you know, between the time you send the manuscript of a book into the publisher and the time that it actually appears on the stand is often a year, close to a year. And after that time, you have a feeling that you had nothing to do with it. Now, let me forget that day when it came out. Uh, I picked up the New York Times, and we were all excited to see what uh, the announcements are going to be. And, and on the literary page of the Times, they always have a little list of books, and it says, Published Today. And there I was, in God We Trust, all of this pay cash, and I was lost down amid a list of books that included one by a lady who wrote one on raising kittens. Uh, then there was a book on, on uh, the care and feeding of geraniums in Nova Scotia. And, uh, <laughs> but there it was, and, and, and I knew that, that three years of work uh, was worth it. And now, uh, after a few months after it's been out, it's now in the seventh edition, and uh, you get a kind of a, a sense of uh, objectivity. I understand that there's a company that wants to do it as a TV show, and there's a movie thing in the works. And After a while, uh, you begin to think of writing as, as something that's so special and so personal that you really can't talk to people about it. And I'll, I'll never forget uh, the first thing that I had published uh, there's something in the air in New York, you know. When you come to New York, you, you get this urge to write. At least I did, and a lot of people do. Uh, the first thing that I ever really wrote for uh, official publication was for the Village Voice years ago when it was first beginning. And that tremendous feeling of satisfaction to see it down there in print. And people come up to you on the street and say, I read what you had to say. And after that, I wrote for The Realist. I wrote for all kinds of magazines. And then... Uh, came the big day when I began to write for Playboy. And, of course, you've all seen Playboy. Uh, I guess everybody's seen Playboy. I don't know how many of you have read it. Uh, the good thing about Playboy is you don't have to actually read it to get the meat of it, you know. It just kind of flops out there at you. But uh, <laughs> uh, Playboy, I, I think, has done more to encourage new writing than uh, any magazine in the past ten years, all kinds of interesting. And I know they've encouraged a lot of photography, too. And a lot of other things. But uh, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me as a writer was uh, to win an award. This this is uh, an award that's actually uh, signed by Hugh Hefner himself. And for those of you who have wondered about it, there is a Hugh Hefner. And he's alive. And uh, this was an award that Playboy gave me for the best humor and satire writing, according to their critical standards, in 1965. And I was lucky enough to win it the year after that, 1966. But to get back to writing itself, uh, this is such a personal thing. It's almost like uh, it's almost like taste. It's like it's like eating an ice cream cone. Have you ever tried to describe to somebody what eating an ice cream cone or 
or uh, drinking a cup of coffee means to you. It's extremely personal. It's hard to, to transmit. And since I'm a natural storyteller, my whole life has been telling stories. I tell stories on the radio. I tell stories at the limelight. Uh, writing is just a natural outgrowth of what I do. Now, every writer has his own way of writing. Some writers, you know, Jack Kerouac, for example, he sits down at a typewriter and he puts a roll of newsprint in his typewriter. And it's a great big long roll. Uh, and he just types on. Uh, George Simenon, the famous French writer, he locks himself in a room for 10 days. And every time he writes a novel, he just writes it in a rush. 10 days. Well, I have my own system of writing. And uh, since I'm a night person, I do all my writing late at night. After I get off the air, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, I, I sit down in the office here and I start to let it all come out. And here is Lee Brown, who uh, is the almost the brunt of it all. <laughs> and uh, Lee takes it down in shorthand and we sit and talk about it afterwards and she types it up for me and then we edit it. And I use Lee as a kind of a, I suppose you might say a litmus paper. I use her as a kind of an audience and... I can always tell she has, a, she has a peculiar way. Whenever I'm not writing well, she looks like she's made out of silly putty. And then I know that I better start all over again. Uh, Lee, I'd like to ask you a question, something that I've never really asked you. Have you better not? <laughs> do you, do you uh, at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'm telling you a story, uh, we're writing something for Playboy or for a novel, uh, do you... Do you find yourself waiting to hear what's going to happen next? Sure. Oh, of course. Because you have a way of kind of leading people along, and every sentence leads to another sentence, and you never really tip your hand, so I really have no way of knowing what's going to happen next. Most writers are very predictable, and you know doggone well that if Charlie is... The last scene you see Charlie walking across the street on his way <laughs> to get married to this fantastic girl, you know he's going to get hit by a car. He's going to get killed. But you never do that. And, it, you know, I, I constantly, it disappoints me terribly when you get tired and say, well, all right, I'll finish it tomorrow, because I want to know what happened. Well, that's, I guess, uh, the greatest compliment a writer can have is to have the people who work with them uh, sit there and wait for the next line to find out what's going to happen. And personally, I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm working on another novel. I love writing. And I think that any of you who've got the slightest urge to write, you better do it. It's the greatest thing in the world. The crowd is dwindling here at the limelight. The show is over. They're going back to their world. He's going back to his. Here it is, Gene Shepard's Main Street. Broadway, the Great White Way, Dream Street. Call it what you will. He's made it all his own. Tonight, we've explored the three worlds of Gene Shepard. We've seen him in action on stage, in front of a mic, and in his office. Author, actor, raconteur, that's a lot of living for one man. Everyone, including Marshall McLuhan, has tried to explain Shepard's success. Perhaps part of the reason is that he enjoys living so much. But he regards each new day as a challenge to be met and conquered. But his zest, his gusto, is still only part of the story. Maybe the rest lies in the fact that he has made Times Square his corner, everybody's corner. It's a long way from Main Street, Hammond, Indiana to Broadway. 
Gene Shepard has made it. But you know, it's funny. In a sense, he never left home. <laughs>